0: Increasingly, we've realized that our lives are so tied to the centralization that we now can look around us and say, okay, if I'm that tied to it, what am I going to do if I, if I don't have access to that? Welcome back to Bitcoin in the Bible, a weekly show for Christians who love God's word, care about sound money, and want to learn about the moral case for Bitcoin. Join us as we hold fast to God's word and hodl Bitcoin. Hi, everyone. My name is Simon, and I'm privileged to be here with Will and David, my Bitcoin brothers. And as we talked about on our last episode, we really just rejoice in how we can spend a lot of time in our lives looking through and researching Bitcoin as well as the Bible and and then bringing to you some of the fruit of that labor each week and, and bringing to you ideas that you can then turn over in your head and contemplate, test, make sure they're accurate and they're valid and then apply as you walk with Christ and as you learn to appreciate the benefits of what Bitcoin has provided for you in the day and age that we live. So this week, I recently listened to a podcast interview of a man named Mark Moss by Preston Pish, And Preston Pish is one of the best Bitcoin interviewers out there. His podcast is definitely commendable, comes out every Wednesday. And uh, we're going to link this particular episode for you in the show notes if you're interested. For those of you who are not familiar with the work of Mark Moss, he has propounded the hypothesis that We are currently approaching the convergence in time and in society of of three key big cycles. And we'll talk about this in a second so you know what they are. Uh, He also proposes that this convergence will profoundly impact the global, social, political, and economic landscape and will be a massive boon to the worldwide adoption of Bitcoin. Uh, As we've talked about before, Bitcoin provides a technological innovation to facilitate a societal reset to sound money that is decentralized, permissionless, and open to global usage. Now, it's important for you to recognize that we're not committed to Mark Moss's analysis or his hypothesis. And we definitely have some concerns about the merits of some of the specific numbers that he throws out there and whether or not these cycles have an actual basis in historical fact or even in predictive value. And so we don't want you to get hung up on his particular model or any of the numbers that you may hear him talk about. Really, what we want to do tonight is to talk through some of the thoughts and questions that he raises, because we find some of them to be very compelling and, and aligned with what believers see around the world going on in the financial space, in the technological developments that we see around us, as well as how these align together with how governments and societies change. Uh, as they go back and forth between different extremes. And so, the, the extreme we want to talk about tonight are the, the, the reality that society tends to go back and forth between various levels of centralization and decentralization. And this is true whether you look in government or whether you look in banking or whether you look in even just how technology is, is used and understood by the population. Now, one of the quotes that we may bring up tonight and we want to talk through is this quote here, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. So this quote sums up the pervasive cyclical vision of history. Now, we're not saying that all history is cyclical all of the time. There are definitely cycles that you see in history. You definitely see a man who works really, really, really hard, earns a great deal of money, and then his son squanders it and, and lives on the, the benefits of having had a wealthy father. And then his son has to start all over again and, and rebuild. Right? That's the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves and three generations idea that, that you may have heard of before. And we recognize that from a biblical perspective, history is the outworking of God's sovereign plan. And it's predominantly linear in its movement toward the establishment of Christ's millennial kingdom and the subsequent new heavens and the new earth that we see described in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, and at Revelation 20 through 22. So with that being said, guys, I just wanted to, to stop and think here about the reality that there are these pendulum swings in history where the prevailing zeitgeist tends towards either centralization or decentralization. And as as we look around us in society today, it seems like we've hit a point that we would kind of agree with Mark Moss on and say that we're, we're reaching a point of what we would refer to as peak centralization, where our society has coalesced into a, a structure that elevates and escalates the level of centralization that's being imposed upon us. What thoughts do you guys have there as you think back on what we just talked about?
1: Yeah, I think you can feel it in the air. Every, it seems like everywhere you look, there's there's talk of a decentralized this or that, whether it's social media or whatnot. And I think that there's this this sense that people have. It's kind of like you know when you watch a, a pendulum swing. There's that brief moment where it just hangs in the air, where the momentum has stopped in the direction it was traveling, and it's it's not yet fully begun to swing back in the other direction. I think that's it's kind of where it feels like we are right now, where uh, there is this this cycle that has has pushed us towards centralization, and you know we're going to get into the, to the cycles. But I think that that we are standing at the the beginning of a huge shift in our society and culture and economic system. And I I mean I am really excited that God has placed us in this time and place, and that uh, we get to. Think through together and and with you guys, uh, just all of the changes that are coming, and and to try to think sharply and and analytically, and to position ourselves and our families and our churches in in a position that is wise to see the danger coming and and to you know, to hide from it and and to really just be shrewd in the midst of all of this.
2: Yes, I agree. Uh, unlike the the pendulum, and I think it's a the pendulum is a is a good illustration certainly of that back and forth kind of motion. But, but here we're talking about something a little bit different in the sense that those that are, have benefited from centralization are not going to be, uh, willing to easily let go of that. Uh, they've, they've figured out how to make it work for them in a big way. And so, I do believe that the pendulum is going to move back. We are going to move towards decentralization. I think we've reached kind of that peak centralization point. But, but as uh, Will, as you said, you know, where are pauses in midair for that split second until it until it begins to move in the other direction. We, we don't know with regard to the world as it is and, and what the Lord has for this world, how long that pause is going to take, and and what's going to be involved in this those in authority relinquishing that authority. I don't think they're going to fade off into the sunset without kind of a fight, honestly. So uh, I expect they're going to be very turbulent times as the tide changes.
0: One of the things that I do agree with Mark Moss on is that he, he's not afraid of pointing out the reality that when this reset occurs, it's not all fun and games. You, you definitely go through some really difficult times as a society, as society resets and rebuilds. And restores. And I think about what I I hear all the time about the men who went through the World War One and World War II timeframes and how they lived in such a way that, that befitted their times. They 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 grew muscles that I don't even dream of having because they had to. They had to restart and rebuild after societies had been destroyed by by war and by government and by economic action. And then as they did so, right, they, they developed productive ways of producing and growing and maturing that then they were able to share with subsequent generations so that those subsequent generations didn't have to go through that same pain to accomplish the same gain. But as happens, right, if you don't go through that pain and, and you just kind of live in the prosperity of the previous generation, you lose those muscles. And eventually when you lose enough of it, As a society, the reset can be very painful. And Mark Moss points out that if we do go, in fact, go through a a reset, it's not going to be rosy for everyone in the world. There's going to be some intentionality that we're going to have to put into thinking through what does that rebuilding, resetting process look like. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this tonight, is that I think that if we have the presence of mind to recognize that we are in a process of change, part of a biblical worldview is to look ahead and say, what should we be planning for and doing now while we have opportunity before things get really bad? And Bitcoin is just one piece of that for us. But I, I want to explore that a little bit more broadly tonight as we think about through what are the other ways that Christians can and should prepare for this reset and what will come
1: afterwards. So talk us through these cycles, Simon. What What is it that we're looking at?
0: Yeah. I'm just gonna give you some brief highlights here. And as we mentioned, you can listen to Mark Moss's presentations on Preston Pish's broadcast or more if you want the, the details here. But in broadly speaking, there's there's three cycles that he points to. One is the easy one that we've talked about many times before, the financial revolution that we're seeing, where we have basically seen our debt-based economy reach a culmination where it's it's painted itself into a corner. <laughs> there's no way to to continue forward without some form of reset because the interest rates have been lowered so low so as not to have to repay all of the debt that has been in exponentially increasing in the later stages of this. So, And this is not new, right? Societies have painted themselves into this debt-based corner before. Wealth has moved through many nation states that had their the global reserve currency, right? Whether that was Portugal, to Spain, to the Netherlands, to France, to England, and to the US. And uh, Mark Moss argues that these are about 80-year transitions, and so therefore you would eventually start to see them piling up into 200-plus-year transitions, where eventually after about 200 to 250 years, that global reserve currency dies. And so if you think about where the US is at, we've been the global reserve currency since the, the early 1900s, about 80 years ago. So it's not unrealistic to see that this financial cycle is coming to a conclusion the second cycle that he proposes is this technological revolution which tends to come in in more of an exponential change right and when i talk about exponential change i mean it's not going to be about the same interval of time between technological revolutions but he definitely it proposes the concept that technological revolutions are not just incremental changes they're they're big disruptive changes that change the way in which the economy works overall so there's some great examples of this in the most recent past i mean we can go back about 50 years and see how much our society has changed since the 1970s with the advent of the information and telecommunications networks that we all live in and with don't even know that we're living in right now but you can go back into the early 1900s and see how oil, automobile and mass production has dramatically reshaped society. Go back into the mid 1800s and see how steel and electricity and heavy engineering changed. And even further than that, right? Go back into the the time of the industrial revolution in the 1770s and just look at how mass production of cotton and the cotton mills of Europe completely changed society. Now, this is where it kind of breaks down because if you can't keep going back further and further and seeing this happen at a regular pace to say, okay, this is exactly going to happen every so often. But you can definitely appreciate that as we move into the time frame from the 2020s and on, that there's the potential for a huge technological change to impact society. And and Mark Moss definitely poses that it could be the advent of Bitcoin, right? A decentralized trustless, permissionless, equal opportunity money system that is not governed by a a centralized entity, right? Instead of governance, we will be ruled by the laws, the protocols that we we voluntarily submit ourselves to, right? We choose to participate in this network. We're not forced to do so. And he poses the thought process that humans are amazingly bad at predicting the future, we think we know what technology is going to do to us in the next 5, 10, 15 years. We rarely have a sense of how much it's going to change us and the lives of society around us.
2: Well, in the 19th century, I believe it was, they were going to shut down. The, the guy who was the head of the U.S. Patent Office said it ought to be shut down because everything that was going to be invented had been invented. So he, he kind of missed that one.
0: <laughs> Indeed. But the one cycle I want to focus in on tonight is this political, social, and cultural revolution. Now, again, that's a lot of concepts wrapped into one phrase. So Mark Moss would definitely concede that this is a big, complex entity that you can't necessarily uh, paint into a corner and say it's just this one thing. But uh, what he does point out is if you look back historically, there definitely have been times where we've kind of swung back and forth between – centralization and decentralization, or alternatively, from collectivism, the we's of society, to individualism, the me's of society. And so some examples that kind of stood out in in my analysis of this here, um, he definitely uh, looks back into the end of the World War II timeframe, right, where The rise of Hitler and Mussolini and and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, creates the New Deal in 1932 and began to turn America into a more socialist form of nation, right? He posed the emergency, which fundamentally transformed uh, the size, scope, and role of the federal government by reacting to that with the New Deal, right? We had this emergency we had to solve. The solution for it was in increasing levels of centralized federal oversight and control. And- Our federal government has never been the same since that time frame in the 1930s. Uh, If you go back further than that, he would definitely argue, and we're going to talk about this tonight, that uh, the American Revolution was a pushback on the centralization of the monarchy, uh, basically choosing a, a more decentralized, individualistic world compared to what that which had come before that. And then... We're going to zero in on this especially because this is a Bitcoin in the Bible podcast, but he would pose the, the hypothesis that the Protestant Reformation that occurred in the 1500s, starting in around 1517, that that this was a peak point in time where peak centralization was rejected by the masses and, and that uh, those who were living underneath the centralized control of church and state, as it was unified in that time frame, have the ability to basically reject that centralized control and and move forward into a more decentralized path. Now, I want to take a more careful, close look at that with you guys, especially since we are committed Christians, we want to make sure we're understanding what happened in the Protestant Reformation specifically. But that's the big picture. And so tonight, I think our focus should be on this concept of centralization because as much as I embrace decentralization— and how much that's going to help as we reset our money system. I want to be careful about abandoning centralization and and decrying it as the worst thing that has ever happened to our world because there are definitely benefits of centralization that we have to be careful if we if we abandon them and say, "All right, we're not we don't want centralization, we're going to embrace pure decentralization." So, that's my first question for us to think through tonight is do we currently see evidence of our society being increasingly centralized? And what are the risks and the benefits of living in that time where you have peak centralization going on?
1: What are the benefits of living in a time of peak centralization? Convenience. Right? Centralization is incredibly convenient because it's super efficient. When everybody is on Twitter or when everybody is on Facebook, when Apple controls the entire supply chain, and right, they deliver compelling products because they can control everything and when it works, it's great and it's really smooth and it, you know, it's frictionless. You don't have to think about it. You just, it just kind of melds into the background.
2: Yeah, I agree. The um, peak centralization, I uh, jotted down a couple of things here. So 70% of us beef production is now tied up in four companies, two of which are Brazilian. The same is basically true in chicken and pork. And so the entire protein structure really of of the United States is held in the hands of just a few corporations. They they control all of that. And so that's an evidence of, of kind of peak centralization. The top four banks in the U.S., J.P. Morgan Chase, B of A, Wells Fargo, and Citibank, um, have more than 39% market share. So when you just think about banking, it's hard to avoid doing business with one of those you know, four major money center banks. We see the same thing in the realm of healthcare: More hospitals are owned, corporately owned, and the insurance consolidations of insurance companies and so forth. So there's definitely these evidences of, of peak centralization. So what is one of the benefits of it? Well, they are able to deliver goods and services efficiently. And consistently. And consistently and at a price, uh, to this date, at least, at a price that is quite a bit cheaper than would be available under a, a decentralized system. There's just less friction this way.
0: And I think there's there's enjoyment in it too, right? And I, I, mean, I think we all decry this, but we also appreciate it, right? Think about how hard it is to not buy from Amazon, right? It's so easy and it's, it's enjoyable to be, have the convenience to say, look, they know me, they know my buying habits, and they know how to get stuff to my house fast, and I appreciate that, right? So it, separating myself from their ecosystem and saying, I don't want it to be centralized requires a lot more work on my behalf, probably requires me to embrace higher cost, either on the product itself or the shipping or both. And I don't necessarily have the ease. If I don't like it, I can't return it as easily. It's just not optimized for me. So I, I think it's important for us to say as much as we don't like centralization. And then believe me, there are definitely some things on this list that I don't like being centralized. I don't like central banks. I don't like the fact that the large commercial banks don't care about the individual person anymore. Right? They have you in their grasp and they know it and they can basically charge you what they want in terms of fee structures and those types of things. Hospitals and health insurance, Right? the fact that the system is as centralized as it is means that the voice of the individual consumer and his ability to choose and work with providers that Provide him or her the flexibility that they want to provide is completely gone in our modern healthcare system. So-
2: Unless you pay cash, and that's been eye opening for for me over the last few years, I've I'm no longer uh, insured, so I'm self insured in that way and pay cash for my all my medical needs. And it is kind of amazing how more streamlined the process is is when when you pay cash for things, and the ability to kind of cut through the red tape and. And get what you need or, or, or want uh, without having to go through all of that. So,
0: yeah, there's, there's huge benefits, right? That simplicity of wherever you move, wherever you live, wherever you travel, having access to the services and goods that you want at a relatively low cost with the, the simplified um, access to them. And it just takes less effort, right? To, to prove that you belong in that system, right? You don't have to verify and regulate yourself Obviously, you've embraced the, the freedom of using cash, but you probably had to put in some extra effort just to prove that you could produce the cash to be able to pay for the, the, the business that you got at those medical institutions, right? Um, but I, obviously, I, I think that when we say we want to leave behind centralization, what we're predominantly saying is we don't want this risk of censorship. We want more freedom and the ability to make choices in a way that's meaningful, and right now we don't feel like the choices that we're making economically, medically, or who we do business are free because they are predominantly so regulated and centralized and controlled uh, that it, we don't, we can't affect our outcomes as, as much as we would like to them.
2: Yeah. So centralization I think leads towards central planning. It, it I think that one inevitably brings the other into play and and so what has happened in the economies of the world, and this is the first time for the, for the entire world, you know, you talked about that there's been uh, inflationary collapses and deflationary collapses throughout history, and there certainly has, and, and um, world reserve currencies have changed through the years, and, and clearly that's true. But this is the first time in the history of the world where everybody's on a fiat system uh, that's entirely debt-based and so what this transition looks like, there is no historical precedent for that. But, but the, back to the point of, of the centrally planned economies is that the, the marketplace has operated historically through the pricing signal. And the pricing signal is, is the accumulation of, of billions and billions of, of individual decisions between buyers and sellers that generates the kind of price signal that businesses have used to regulate production and that banks and and um, and lenders have used to establish interest rates and and all those sort of things and they've all been crushed in this process and so now the problem is 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 we have these benefits of the centralization in terms of of less friction but but we've at the same time, we now have the world's economies controlled by really just a small number of corporations using algorithms that are that are basically ignoring and overwhelming the, the free market decisions of individuals.
1: Yeah, so centralization is really a, kind of a double-edged sword. You get the efficiency gains and you know, the convenience of you can go anywhere in the world and eat at McDonald's and get the same hamburger. But... Because when you have this centralization, you have this concentration of power, and we're living in a world in which these corporations have uh, unimaginable influence over the monetary system through, you know, the, the political system, which is built really on bribery. So you have these massive corporations who dictate policy, they get themselves close to the money printer, and then it, that's really when it starts to get a vicious cycle. So... The centralization is is bad in this sense because the efficiency gains that you have that you gain are counteracted by the fact that these centralized corporations can then just cut you off. They can deplatform you completely. And if it's social media and you get deplatformed, you know if you're Donald Trump and you get kicked off of Twitter, it's obnoxious, but it's not the end of the world. But if they cut you off from the food supply, they cut you off from the power, they cut you off from life. That. You know, they hold all the cards. And and why do they hold all the cards? They hold all the cards because they have control over the money printer. They control the
2: on-ramps and off-ramps. So if GoFundMe decides that $10 million Canadian is no longer going to be able to go to our truckers in Canada, then they just freeze the account and seize it. And, and that's the end of it.
0: Yeah, and we... You can see that on display right the benefits of centralization are there's organizations like gofundme that have made it really easy for people to be able to bring about goodness to a person right from a a a wide vast array of people bringing in their funds to one centralized source that then can give that to that person directly without having to go individual to individual through all of those gifts but when it turns on you and when it doesn't work for you then suddenly you're in trouble and you realize how dependent you are upon pieces of that centralization. And I think you made a good point, Will. In our head, in our minds, it's not a bad thing until it cuts off something that we can't do without. And that's where increasingly we've realized that our lives are so tied to the centralization that we've now can look around us and say, okay, if I'm that tied to it, what am I going to do if I I don't have access to that?
2: What if I don't have access to medical care? Because I'm not towing a certain party line with regard to health procedures. Where do I go?
0: Yeah. So this is where Bitcoin enters the picture specifically for the economic sphere. Now, uh, the, the idea that Bitcoin fixes many other things politically and socially and economically is, is, is out there. And we, we definitely share enthusiasm that having sound money Reshapes society as a whole, but it, Bitcoin doesn't fix everything, and we've talked about that before. There, there still will be aspects of society that will persist on in in the world, even if Bitcoin becomes our monetary standard. But if we look at Bitcoin specifically, it's one of several social societal entities that is now moving towards this decentralized foundation. And so, I want us to look in the same way that we looked at centralization at the at the risks that living in a decentralized world bring to you, and as well as the benefits that living in a decentralized world could bring to you?
1: There's pain. There's that short-term inconvenience. When you are used to a centralized world where the experience is perfectly curated and provided by a large corporation, this decentralized infrastructure is, it's not what you're used to. There's friction to it. So if I were to, to just sit, down with somebody and say, okay, you need to run your own Bitcoin node and you need to have private keys in a hardware wallet and get your funds off of the exchange. And then you're going to set up a lightning node and you're going to open channels. Like it, this is, this is painful for people We're trying to onboard them onto not only an alternate monetary system, but an alternate monetary system that's, that's built with a completely different set of criteria than the current one. It's, it's, whoa, that's, that's a, that's a big hurdle to, to overcome. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You know, they just got used to using their ATM card. Right. So it's, it's definitely creates pain in, in that process. And because we're in that early adoption phase, the systems aren't clean and they don't all talk to each other. And, and you do, you know, particularly for someone of my generation, uh, you can feel kind of lost in, in some of
1: this. And it takes time. It takes time to build the infrastructure. You don't just have a single corporation charging ahead, mandating, we're going to do this, then this, then this, here's our product roadmap, let's execute on it and get it done. You have thousands, tens of thousands of engineers all over the world working on it. Some of them professionally for companies, but a lot of them, you know, contributing in their spare time and they have to achieve consensus and they've got to battle test each other's code and they need to verify that, that no one is maliciously trying to inject things into the code that it's going to compromise its integrity and Bitcoin moves slowly. It's very cautious. They don't just merge code willy-nilly because there's a, a soberness to the fact that we're building an open source monetary network. There's There's a ton of attack vectors and we need to be really cautious that we don't introduce a bug or a vulnerability that's going to bring this thing down.
0: Yeah, I think that's Big picture, one of the things that decentralization fixes, but it also has as its intermediate step a level of vulnerability that's not protected by the the centralization. Just an example, right? A, yesterday, I got a text message on my phone saying, "Hey, possible fraud alert. Uh, someone's trying to spend money on your son's debit card." Right? Call this number. Let us know if this transaction is is valid. It wasn't, right? So the system was there to protect me, and I'm thankful for it just as much as I recognize that that system uh, is maybe not what I want long term, right? If I want freedom to be able to spend my money, then I, I need, to, need to have it outside of a system that has that level of oversight and control, right? What if that was the government basically on the other end saying, no, you can't spend that money. You can't give that money, right? Would I be as appreciative of that centralized oversight over my monetary transactions? So, embracing decentralization means that you are embracing change means that you're learning new tools, you're shifting to new processes and you're maybe doing so in times that may create local vulnerabilities. In other words, if we embraced a fully decentralized society where every local city had its own police force and militia, right? Sounds great. But if a large military decides to walk across the border and take over, those cities don't have the infrastructure to be able to prevent that from happening. Right? So That's where you would want the benefits and the security of a large centralized military force. And and so embracing decentralization as a society means you need to measure your steps. You say, what is it that I really want? And is decentralization really the answer? And am I willing to take all of the steps in the middle ground to get there? And I think that there are benefits. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should not be pursuing decentralization specifically with respect to money because a money system that's based on consensus and verification rather than trust in a centralized entity is definitely something that I want.
2: Well, we want it because we're absolutely persuaded that it reflects the mind of God, that it is a, it is a biblically based monetary system and therefore will lead to human flourishing.
0: And one of the ways that we'll do that is it will restore what has been lost in terms of rewarding the quality of a man's work, right? Right now, we, we live in a world where there's an increasing separation between the haves and the have-nots because the money and the work are not tied together anymore. And, and success in a centralized system is not directly related to the quality or the quantity of your labor. A more meritocratic system or a system where meritocracy is elevated is one that is decentralized, where a man's work is measured more appropriately. And That means that there needs to be freedom to fail. There needs to be opportunity for risks to be taken, benefits to be measured. And and if uh, a man's work or his business is not up to the snuff to meet the needs of the free market, then it fails and it resets. And that's a good part of a decentralized world that we're not experiencing right now.
1: It's cleansing. It's really interesting to to me to see uh, there are Bitcoiners who are not believers and yet there is still just the common grace of God that as they have embraced a monetary system which is uh, based on on verification rather than trust and it is a kind of a clean system that is free from you know the the stranglehold of manipulation, it they start to question other things and they say start to step back and say, okay, let's let's rebuild things from the ground up and you see efforts in, regenerative agriculture and in small scale food production and this idea of okay, let's build communities. And even though we're gonna be we're gonna be decentralized, let's let's still come together and build a a community of people working together for a, a common goal. And we can do that because we have a monetary system that enables us to store value and to transact with each other. And um, you know, there, there's a guy, Untapped Growth, on Twitter who is, who's doing regenerative agriculture with heritage breed cattle. And it's just fascinating to me to watch um, these endeavors to kind of rebuild society from the bottom up.
2: Yeah, one of, the, one of the risks of centralization we didn't mention is that the idea of a single point of failure is that you, the system becomes so finely tuned. And we're kind of watching that now with the, the entire world shipping fiasco. But it's become so finely tuned with just-in-time inventory and so forth that that any one bottleneck, for, you know, for the lack of a of a part, Ford has to shut down and idle an entire production line of of automobiles because there's no other source, there's no second source of parts, and nobody carrying any inventories. So those, you know, that's the downside of of that entirely fine-tuned system. that more decentralized approach gives you the redundancies, um, there is, you know, there's inefficiencies in the redundancies as well, but, but it's a more robust system.
0: And just to point back to that as well, when we embrace decentralization in, in areas outside of money, we just need to be prepared for that. Right. So for example, if I did have a, a, se- a severe health problem in my family, The benefits of a centralized system are that I could go to the local hospital, and even if the healthcare providers there did not understand the disease that my child had or that I had, they could reach out to a network of health providers across a country and find a specialist who does have the ability and refer me to that specialist. When I embrace a decentralized world where my local health provider may be my only option, or I may have a a series of decentralized ones, I might have to drive a little further. I might have to to work harder, to find someone who can help me with that. But the quality of getting access to the system at the, on the basis that you establish on the, on the ability to negotiate your own rates and to, and to work with people who share similar values or who are willing to work with you through the opportunities that you have together, those benefits may come at a, at a cost in a short term but a long-term gain as we as we restore and rebuild aspects of society that have been abandoned because centralization has offered us so much promise. Okay, so we've deviated from our normal workflow here and, and not introduced scripture passages and, and a biblical thought process before we started diving into the, the, the topic at hand, but I want to reset a little bit here because this, this really was provocative to my thought process, and I wanted to think through carefully the question of, was the Protestant Reformation a move towards decentralization and a rejection of centralization? Or is it more nuanced than that?
2: I would say it was clearly more nuanced than that. The Protestant Reformation was the rediscovery of the gospel the scriptures had had fallen into disuse originally translated into latin uh, with jerome which was at that time the vulgate uh, the idea of a common tongue uh, it was designed to be able to be read but but over time with the fall of the roman empire and so forth latin had become an obscure language And so the people didn't read Latin and couldn't read the scriptures, and eventually even the priesthood, for the most part, couldn't read it. And so being cut off from the word of God in that way, the church-state paradigm started under Constantine in the 4th century, um, became encrusted with theological barnacles, if you will, and and the gospel became obscured. It, It became hidden under layers of human tradition and... Uh, stewarded by corrupt individuals until, for the average person, the gospel of, of the Lord Jesus Christ had become obscure and, and even unavailable. And so it was a, a mighty work of the Spirit of God to peel that all away and allow his people to again discover the truth.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's definitely true that if you lived in the 1500s in, and were part of the Catholic church at that point in time. You didn't have a lot of options. It wasn't like you could just say, hey, they're not preaching the gospel. I'm going to go find a new church. So the reality that the world and, and churches have changed significantly as a result of the reformers and their work of, of restoring biblical truth about salvation and scripture and, and how to worship God and provided the people around them an option outside of the Roman Catholic church that's definitely consistent with a, a move towards decentralization. But what we're not saying here is that, that the Protestant Reformation basically unleashed this, you can have God any way you want, you can make church whatever you want, you can just go do it your own way, there is no one right truth. That's definitely not true.
2: Yeah, truth is still found in one God, one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? One inspired Word of God. There is one way to God. He must be worshipped in spirit and truth, right? By like, It's through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. That that is the gospel. It's always been the gospel. It's the it's the only means of salvation. But there were, you know, just kind of thinking about this, Simon. The there were political things going on, so there was there was a a anti-monarch kind of movement in which then the what now are nations of europe were beginning to discover nationhood that the sort of tribal um loyalties were coalescing and and so there was pushback uh particularly in germany and and places uh, like that and so that fed into it i mean it's all in the under the providence of god we have you know, Gutenberg Press in, in 1454 with, you know, with the movable type and the ability now to, to quickly and far more inexpensively produce written material, which allowed for the dissemination of the gospel uh, widely in, in uh, common tongues. So there were a number of those sort of societal factors at play as well, as well that, that led to the breakdown of a centralized church authority.
1: Right so it's not that it wasn't a move toward decentralization it just wasn't just a move toward decentralization so we have this move toward decentralization occurring you know with the the backdrop of the factors that you've just talked about and really ignited by technological innovation of the printing press so you have this the pendulum starting to shift towards decentralization and there are you know the the reformers who feel this intense conviction about we need to we need to preach we've lost the gospel we need to preach the gospel and we're going to ref- at the beginning we're going to reform the church.
2: Yeah, they weren't they weren't looking to destroy it. They were looking right. to reform it. The the church ejected them. They they did walk away for the most part. They were driven out.
1: And so what you have is you have this technological innovation that really just caused this movement to explode. Had it not been for the technological innovation of the printing press, we don't know what the Reformation would have looked like. I imagine it would have been far more contained and much easier to squash by the, by the Catholic Church.
0: Yeah, and so the reality that multiple churches and denominations spread outwards from the Protestant Reformation is consistent with decentralization. You don't have an explanation for the world that we live in today without the Protestant Reformation. And I'm thankful for that because in the world that we live in today now, if your church or if your denomination becomes unfaithful to scripture, you can and you should leave and find a church that preaches the truth, right? And we definitely would challenge all of you out there who are biblical Christians to make sure that you are adherent to the gospel, to the, to the one truth. And if your church is not preaching that truth, then Obviously, reform is one of the steps, right? (laughs) Work within your church first, but ultimately, if your church or your denomination abandons God's word, abandons the scriptures, abandons worship of Jesus Christ, then you have the ability as an individual to choose to move with your family to a church that does preach the truth. And that's a blessing that the Reformation has made possible for us. So then this takes us to a different question. Is decentralization a biblical ideal? Is it something we can find in scripture?
2: would say yes with with certain caveats for sure right god has created us as individuals uh, who exercise what we have spoken of a number of times here as a secondary sovereignty over our life and and our liberty and our property but but we are still accountable to god and we're accountable to the authority structures in our lives that he has established he's established them for our good and um so we want to embrace those those things for sure and and so decentralized yes but but not entirely um, so
1: decentralization does not imply anarchy so you look at first century churches they were decentralized and the early church was was a conglomeration of, of house churches that were tied together by a common bond of, of faith but it's not a single hierarchical organization in the same way our families are Tied together with our local church by by a common bond today, and we don't need a strict um, hierarchy uh, to do so. We are we can decentralize while still respecting the spheres of authority that God has put in place, and that, because that is how He's orchestrated His world uh, to operate
2: and cooperate voluntarily. So that's kind of a decentralized concept, but to cooperate with other churches of like faith uh, to accomplish things that one single um, body couldn't, couldn't accomplish. And certainly missionary endeavor is something that comes to mind.
0: I was just talking about this this morning with my kids as we were reading the Old Testament law and recognizing that there was definitely centralization in God's world in the Old Testament law. <laughs> there was one way you could worship. There was one place to go. Right? You
2: come to the temple.
0: You come to the temple. Right? You, you worship God's ways or you're not doing it the right way. But the, the beauty and the reality is that there's not the same rigid restriction of exactly how that worship pattern needs to be done in the New Testament. There's definitely structure, and we're going to talk about that a little bit here. But it doesn't say how big the podium has to be. It doesn't say what kind of wood it has to be made from. It doesn't say how many doors there have to be on the outside of your church or what, how they're going to be covered, right? There, there's freedom for church to exist in uh multiple different forms across societal, societal time and place. And, and that's a good thing as part of God's world. And just as you pointed out, Will, that's, that's how it was designed from God's perspective in acts, right? He envisioned his, his disciples going into the furthest reaches of the world and preaching the gospel to the nations and taking with them the, the simplicity of what the gospel was and not the complexity of a, of a sort of a rigid structure that had to be applied exactly the same way in every place.
2: Right, the Old Testament God localized His presence. He tabernacled with His people in the in the tabernacle itself, and later Solomon's temple, and so forth. And and you know that points forward. Uh, reading the same passages in in uh, Exodus this morning myself, and and God's words to Moses, make sure you construct it exactly the way it's been told to you to do. You know, it was a very exacting. Set of blueprints, as it were, that needed to be built and and um, in the New Testament right God tabernacles among us in the person of his Son the Lord Jesus Christ, and so that's not he's not subject to our innovation right there's only one way uh, to God and it's through the Lord jesus christ and and all other means are that anyone would um, postulate are are invalid and um, we'll, we'll not will not bring you into the presence of God. And so so that principle of centralization still carries Old to New Testament, Mm. Um, but the the form of worship is far more decentralized.
1: And talking about those holding the levers of power don't like to let go of the transition, you can look at that transition. When the veil of the temple was torn, Right, the centralized system of worship that had been corrupted by... Um, Evil men who exploited their positions to really make a mockery of God, they weren't so happy to relinquish the power. They didn't like the idea that now, you know, their centralized control over worship had been stripped from them.
0: Yeah, but I like what you said there, David, right? Centralization is still present in the New Testament. It's just in a different form. And the reality that we as independent human beings, man and women, uh, the same before the cross, right? Exercising freedom and autonomy in in choosing to submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ are doing so with the ultimate responsibility to God's moral law, which has never changed. It's not an Old Testament law that's now gone and we're free to just do whatever the heck we want to do in a decentralized world. God is still God, and his standards of righteousness are still there. In fact, the righteousness that Christ challenges us to in the New Testament is even greater in in how it looks at our hearts, right? So as believers, we are bound to Christ, and and his love binds us to one another. And I think that this is important for me to think about just as much as I think some of our listeners need to think about this too, because there's there's this notion in the world that we live in today that you can be a nomad— You can just basically go where you're treated best. You can take your money, leave the society that you're currently in and just go wander around and you don't even have to have a home. You can just work from wherever you happen to have an internet connection because that's how technology and society are changing around to us. And while I I think about that idea and go, wow, that is true in many ways, it's not the ideal for how God intends for his people to live in community with one another and to submit themselves to a local body of elders who are to be Christ's under shepherds and, and are bound to the authority of his scriptures and are responsible for maintaining a relationship with the people in their body. That's tied back to that central authority of Christ and his scriptures.
2: Yeah. I mean the book of judges, right? Each man did what was right in his own eyes and you've got 400 years of chaos. So that notion of, of, of complete decentralization when it comes to relating to God, but even relating to each other. I mean, the, the, the stories of the Book of Judges, right, are horrendous as, as, at the level of morality and civility and so forth. So, so that thought that you that everyone's a nomad, everybody can do whatever they want to do, and it does it doesn't matter. We don't need each other, or whatever, is a is a recipe for disaster.
0: Yeah, we must cling to what Christ has given to us. And God has given us one centralized truth source, right? The word of God, right? Predominantly revealed in in scripture, but obviously in Christ himself. And and we must embrace the reality that each scripture passage that we go to has one interpretation with multiple applications for sure, but we cannot bend or twist scripture to say what we want it to say, right? Scripture says one thing and and it's our job to go to it with the help of our church leadership to, to find that one thing, right? And in that sense, local church leadership, submitting yourself to elders and pastors, that's a limited form of centralization. It's not a denomination. It's not the Roman Catholic church. It's not you submitting to a governing body that does not know and love you and relate to you. It is, it is you, in obedience to scripture, humbly choosing to submit to the spiritual oversight of a group of elders who are themselves accountable to Christ and to his people. And, and so in that sense, the benefits of centralization and that mean that you, are, you have someone else to watch out for you and to, to, to feed you, to feed you the word every Sunday. And, and you can't do without that constant feeding for very long, right? There, there are obviously exceptions, missionaries who go into close countries and don't have a local elder board over the top of them uh, helping them in, the, the, in that local context, but they're still accountable to, to those who sent them out back home and there, and there needs to be that accountability or it's, it's starting to deviate away from God's design.
2: Yeah. I think it's really helpful to think about biblical authority, which is, I guess we would say is a, is a, a sign of centralization, but, but to think about biblical authority for what it really is. In other words, it's not, it's not about restricting our freedom, it's not a, a negative concept of of denying us this that or or the other thing biblical authority properly understood is life giving right it's it's protective it's it's nurturing it's loving it's kind and generous and and self-sacrificing and and so when it's properly understood and and practiced it's a it's a very good thing it's a very beautiful thing it's essential for human flourishing because it reflects the very character of god right so jesus said in mark ten forty five that even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many so there's biblical authority there's the there's an act of centralization that that brings about the the redemption of of mankind right so we we see that that biblical authority as a foundational structure of human society and the bible speaks of such things we we have the husband-wife relationship, and you know, spoken of, uh, introduced in Genesis two, and Paul referring back to that in Ephesians five, and establishing roles within the home and so forth, and a husband's leadership and a, and a wife's uh, following as as his helpmate and, and so forth. That's a that's a beautiful thing. We have we have the elders and church members, and and how they relate to one another. Hebrews 13, 17, 1 Peter five, speak of of the same kind of thing. It's an authority that loves, that serves, that gives life to those under its care. And then government and citizens properly understood in, in Romans 13, and we have an episode on this, but several times in that passage that the government is called a deacon of God. It's called a servant of God. The government is designed to, to serve people, to protect them, to, to be life-giving towards them not to rule over them for for its own benefit.
0: So that brings us to an important concluding question here as we think about this. and we, we recognize that society is changing, and it is swinging towards an age of decentralization, and technology and financial change is only going to accelerate that change. So what are the implications for Christ's disciples? And, and what what must we focus upon to remain faithful to God and his word as society changes around us?
2: I think one thing that we that we need to enter into this conversation, so here's the place where I'm going to put it in, just thinking about, again, centralization. The peak act of centralization is the reality that we are a fallen race in Adam. We are centralized in Adam. That's Paul's argument in Romans 5. We sinned in Adam, and thus we are all condemned. And as a believer, we are centralized in Christ, the second Adam. It's in union with him that we are adopted and become sons of the living God. It, it is it is our redemption, is our spiritual union with Christ. And so that's peak centralization that brings about the redemption of mankind. So so centralization itself is very much an idea of God and is an expression of his kindness and goodness and love. So we don't ever want to, um, in, in our pursuit of, of some of our decentralized goals, for an economy and, and a society and so forth, that we don't ever lose sight of the reality that we are one in we are one in Christ, and that it, and that centralization is um, determines our eternal destiny.
1: Right. Peak decentralization is the the idea that you can stand and justify yourself in front of your Creator. Yeah. It is it is absolute folly. So yeah, as we are swinging from. Peak centralization towards decentralization. We need to be careful that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We need to understand and think carefully and critically, and not just recklessly run towards things that are decentralized out of reaction. Right? Find the the narrow path and tread wisely on it, and and don't just uh, throw out you know, the old marking stones. Yeah, do not move the ancient boundary stones. Yeah,
2: absolutely
0: and count the cost. We talked about how change can be difficult. And so as you embrace change, measure your steps. Make sure that the change that you're pursuing, you understand how much work you're going to have to put into achieving it. And I think that there's actually a, a a positive step to this as well. If you believe that decentralization is the future, then you're going to have to put in some work now to start building the muscle. And building the societal muscle that it's going to take to allow us to merge over into decentralization without a complete collapse in the middle ground. And you'll hear this spoken to whether you listen to believers or non-believers. They recognize that the system that we live in right now provides a lot of safety, security, and ease and protection that we take for granted Fairly, And when we ask for change, we don't often realize how much we're, we're getting ready to forego so as believers, I would encourage you to start thinking about how does my giftedness, how does my skill set allow me to build structures that are going to be better in a decentralized context? And can I endure some short-term pain in how I do business and in how I live as an individual to prepare myself for the difficulty level of, of living in a world that is restarting without all of the conveniences of our modern centralization? All right. Well, thanks so much for the discussion tonight, guys. We really look forward to hearing back from all of you who are going to get back to us on what you think. Remember to check out our website at bitcoininthebible.com or send us an email at bitcoininthebible at gmail.com and let us know how we can continue to help you as we plan out the rest of our season three episodes. And our episode today has focused us on some really key realities and steps of practical application that I'll just summarize for us here. The first is that our current society is moving very rapidly towards a financial crisis uh, that may be accelerated by technological disruption and a, ch- a movement away from centralization. So we definitely see the potential of a, a reactionary reset. And we want to ground ourselves in the reality that centralization is not purely evil, but it is prone to corruption by the sinfulness of human pride, deceit, theft, and violence. And decentralization, and specifically Bitcoin, provides an alternative for the societal reset that, that may happen here. So as Christians, we do embrace decentralization, but we must take care to approach it biblically and not abandon our core central commitment to the truth that God is our authority. And living under God's authority allows us to embrace the Bible as our source of truth and salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as the only way to be saved. And as we've talked about tonight, God's design for Christians is to live in submission to their local church elders and in right relationship with one another. And so as we see society changing, we want to encourage you to hold fast to that which is true. And uh, do not abandon it just for the promise of decentralization. As we conclude today, we want to first thank all of you for your support and encouragement. And we in turn want to encourage you to trust God, love Christ, love your neighbor, and save in Bitcoin.